BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Book 11, Chapter 26 Of War and Peace, Volume 3 By Leo Tolstoy Translated by Elmer Maud This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book 11, Chapter 26 Toward four o'clock in the afternoon, Marat's troops were entering Moscow. In front rode a detachment of Württemberg hussars, and behind them rode the King of Naples himself, accompanied by a numerous suite. About the middle of the Arbat Street, near the church of the miraculous icon of St. Nicholas, Marat halted to await news from the advanced detachment as to the condition in which they had found the citadel, Le Kremlin. Around Marat gathered a group of those who had remained in Moscow. They all stared in timid bewilderment at the strange, long-haired commander dressed up in feathers and gold. "'Is that the Tsar himself? He's not bad,' low voices could be heard saying. An interpreter rode up to the group. "'Take off your caps! Your caps!' These words went from one to another in the crowd. The interpreter addressed an old porter and asked if it was far to the Kremlin. The porter, listening in perplexity to the unfamiliar Polish accent, and not realizing that the interpreter was speaking Russian, did not understand what was being said to him and slipped behind the others. Marat approached the interpreter and told him to ask where the Russian army was. One of the Russians understood what was asked, and several voices at once began answering the interpreter. A French officer, returning from the advanced detachment, rode up to Marab and reported that the gates of the citadel had been barricaded, and that there was probably an ambuscade there. "'Good,' said Marab, and turning to one of the gentlemen in his suite, ordered four light guns to be moved forward to fire at the gates. The guns emerged at a trot from the column following Marab and advanced up the Arbat. When they reached the end of the Vajgevenska street, they halted and drew in the square. Several French officers superintended the placing of the guns, and looked at the Kremlin through field-glasses. The bells in the Kremlin were ringing for vespers, and this sound troubled the French. They imagined it to be a call to arms. 
a few infantrymen ran to the Katafiev gate. Beams and wooden screens had been put there, and two musket-shots rang out from under the gate as soon as an officer and men began to run toward it. A general who was standing by the guns shouted some words of command to the officer, and the latter ran back again with his men. The sound of three more shots came from the gate. One shot struck a French soldier's foot, and from behind the screens came the strange sound of a few voices shouting. Instantly, as at a word of command, the expression of cheerful serenity on the faces of the French general, officers and men, changed to one of determined, concentrated readiness for strife and suffering. To all of them, from the marshal to the least soldier, that place was not the Vazjevenka, Mokovaya, or Kutaviev Street, nor the Troitska Gate, places familiar in Moscow, but a new battlefield which would probably prove sanguinary. And all made ready for that battle. The cries from the gate ceased. The guns were advanced. The artillerymen blew the ash off their linstocks, and an officer gave the word, Fire! This was followed by two whistling sounds of canister shot, one after another. The shot rattled against the stone of the gate and upon the wooden beams and screens, and two wavering clouds of smoke rose over the square. A few instants after the echo of the reports resounding over the stone-built Kremlin had died away, the French heard a strange sound above their head. Thousands of crows rose above the walls and circled in the air, cawing and noisily flapping their wings. Together with that sound came a solitary human cry from the gateway, and amid the smoke appeared the figure of a bareheaded man in a peasant's coat. He grasped a musket and took aim at the French. Fire! repeated the officer once more, and the reports of a musket and of two cannon-shots were heard simultaneously. The gate was again hidden by smoke. Nothing more stirred behind the screens, and the French infantry soldiers and officers advanced to the gate. In the gateway lay three wounded and four dead. Two men in peasant coats ran away at the foot of the wall toward the Znamenka. "'Clear that away!' said the officer, pointing to the beams and the corpses, and the French soldiers, after dispatching the wounded, threw the corpses over the parapet. Who these men were, nobody knew. Clear that away was all that was said of them, and they were thrown over the parapet and removed later on that they might not stink. Thiers alone dedicates a few elegant lines to their memory. These wretches had occupied the sacred citadel, having supplied themselves with guns from the arsenal, and fired the wretches at the French. Some of them were sabred, and the Kremlin was purged of their presence. Marat was informed that the way had been cleared. The French entered the gates and began pitching their camp in the Senate Square. Out of the windows of the Senate House the soldiers threw chairs into the square for fuel and kindled fires there. Other detachments passed through the Kremlin and encamped along the Morozeka, the Lubyanka, and Pokrovka streets. Others quartered themselves along the Vozhvizhenka, the Nikolsky, and the Verskoy streets. No masters of the houses being found anywhere, the French were not billeted on the inhabitants as is usual in towns, but lived in it as in a camp. Though tattered, hungry, worn out, and reduced to a third of their original number, the French entered Moscow in good marching order. It was a weary and famished, but still a fighting and menacing army. But it remained an army only until its soldiers had dispersed into their different lodgings. 
as soon as the men of the various regiments began to disperse among the wealthy and deserted houses, the army was lost forever, and there came into being something nondescript, neither citizens nor soldiers, but what are known as marauders. When five weeks later these same men left Moscow, they no longer formed an army. They were a mob of marauders, each carrying a quantity of articles which seemed to him valuable or useful. The aim of each man when he left Moscow was no longer, as it had been, to conquer, but merely to keep what he had acquired. Like a monkey which puts his paw into the narrow neck of a jug, and having seized a handful of nuts will not open its fist for fear of losing what it holds, and therefore perishes, the French, when they left Moscow, had inevitably to perish because they carried their loot with them, yet to abandon what they had stolen was as impossible for them as it is for the monkey to open its paw and let go of its nuts. Ten minutes after each regiment had entered a Moscow district, not a soldier or officer was left. Men in military uniforms and hessian boots could be seen through the windows, laughing and walking through the rooms. In cellars and storerooms similar men were busy among the provisions, and in the yards unlocking or breaking open coach-house and stable-doors, lighting fires in kitchens, and kneading and baking bread with rolled-up sleeves and cooking, or frightening, amusing, or caressing women and children. There were many such men, both in the shops and houses, but there was no army. Order after order was issued by the French commanders that day, forbidding the men to disperse about the town, sternly forbidding any violence to the inhabitants or any looting, and announcing a roll-call for that very evening. But despite all these measures, the men, who had till then constituted an army, flowed all over the wealthy, deserted city with its comforts and plentiful supplies. As a hungry herd of cattle keeps well together when crossing a barren field, but gets out of hand and at once disperses uncontrollably as soon as it reaches rich pastures, so did the army disperse all over the wealthy city. No residents were left in Moscow, and the soldiers, like water percolating through sand, spread irresistibly through the city in all directions from the Kremlin into which they had first marched. The cavalry, on entering a merchant's house that had been abandoned and finding their stabling more than sufficient for their horses, went on all the same to the next house which seemed to them better. Many of them appropriated several houses, chalked their names on them, and quarrelled and even fought with other companies for them. Before they had time to secure quarters, the soldiers ran out into the streets to see the city, and, hearing that everything had been abandoned, rushed to places where valuables were to be had for the taking. The officers followed to check the soldiers, and were involuntarily drawn into doing the same. In Carriage Row carriages had been left in the shops, and generals flocked there to select caleches and coaches for themselves. The few inhabitants who had remained invited commanding officers to their houses, hoping thereby to secure themselves from being plundered. There were masses of wealth, and there seemed no end to it. All around the quarters occupied by the French were other regions still unexplored and unoccupied, where, they thought, yet greater riches might be found. And Moscow engulfed the army ever deeper and deeper. When water is spilled on dry ground, both the dry ground and the water disappear, and mud results. And in the same way, the entry of the famished army into the rich and deserted city 
resulted in fires and looting and the destruction of both the army and the wealthy city. The French attributed the fire of Moscow a patriotisme féroce de Rostopchin, to Rostopchin's ferocious patriotism, the Russians to the barbarity of the French. In reality, however, it was not and could not be possible to explain the burning of Moscow by making any individual or any group of people responsible for it. Moscow was burned because it found itself in a position in which any town built of wood was bound to burn, quite apart from whether it had or had not a hundred and thirty inferior fire-engines. Deserted Moscow had to burn, as inevitably as a heap of shavings has to burn on which sparks continually fall for several days. A town built of wood, where scarcely a day passes without conflagrations when the house-owners are in residence and a police force is present, cannot help burning when its inhabitants have left it and it is occupied by soldiers who smoke pipes, make campfires of the Senate chairs in the Senate Square, and cook themselves meals twice a day. In peacetime it is only necessary to billet troops in the villages of any district, and the number of fires in that district immediately increases. How much, then, must the probability of fire be increased in an abandoned wooden town where foreign troops are quartered? Le patriotisme féroce de Rostopchin and the barbarity of the French were not to blame in the matter. Moscow was set on fire by the soldiers' pipes, kitchens and campfires, and by the carelessness of enemy soldiers occupying houses they did not own. Even if there was any arson, which is very doubtful, for no one had any reason to burn the houses, in any case a troublesome and dangerous thing to do. Arson cannot be regarded as the cause, for the same thing would have happened without any incendiarism. However tempting it might be for the French to blame Rostopchin's ferocity, and for the Russians to blame the scoundrel Bonaparte, or later on to place an heroic torch in the hands of their own people, it is impossible not to see that there could be no such direct cause of the fire for Moscow had to burn, as every village, factory, or house must burn, which is left by its owners, and in which strangers are allowed to live and cook their porridge. Moscow was burned by its inhabitants, it is true, but by those who had abandoned it, and not by those who remained in it. Moscow, when occupied by the enemy, did not remain intact, like Berlin, Vienna, and other towns, simply because its inhabitants abandoned it, and did not welcome the French with bread and salt, nor bring them the keys of the city. End of Book Eleven, Chapter Twenty Six. Book Eleven, Chapter Twenty Seven, of War and Peace, Volume Three, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Eleven, Chapter Twenty Seven. The absorption of the French by Moscow, radiating starwise as it did, only reached the quarter where Pierre was staying by the evening of the second of September. After the last two days spent in solitude and unusual circumstances, Pierre was in a state bordering on insanity. He was completely obsessed by one persistent thought. He did not know how or when this thought had taken such possession of him but he remembered nothing of the past, understood nothing of the present, and all he saw and heard appeared to him like a dream. 
He had left home only to escape the intricate tangle of life's demands that enmeshed him, and which, in his present condition, he was unable to unravel. He had gone to Joseph Alexeyevich's house, on the plea of sorting the deceased books and papers, only in search of rest from life's turmoil, for in his mind the memory of Joseph Alexeyevich was connected with the world of eternal, solemn, and calm thoughts, quite contrary to the restless confusion into which he felt himself being drawn. He sought a quiet refuge, and in Joseph Alexeyevich's study he really found it. When he sat with his elbows on the dusty writing-table, in the death-like stillness of the study, calm and significant memories of the last few days rose one after another in his imagination, particularly of the Battle of Borodino, and of that vague sense of his own insignificance and insincerity compared with the truth, simplicity, and strength of the class of men he mentally classed as they. When Gerasim roused him from his reverie, the idea occurred to him of taking part in the popular defense of Moscow, which he knew was projected. And with that object he had asked Gerasim to get him a peasant's coat and a pistol, confiding to him his intentions of remaining in Joseph Alexeyevich's house and keeping his name secret. Then, during the first day spent in inaction and solitude, he tried several times to fix his attention on the Masonic manuscripts, but was unable to do so, the idea that had previously occurred to him of the cabalistic significance of his name in connection with Bonaparte's more than once vaguely presented itself. But the idea that he, Lerus Besuhoff, was destined to set a limit to the power of the beast was as yet only one of the fancies that often passed through his mind and left no trace behind. When, having bought the coat merely with the object of taking part among the people in the defense of Moscow, Pierre had met the Rostovs, and Natasha had said to him, "'Are you remaining in Moscow? How splendid!' The thought flashed into his mind that it really would be a good thing, even if Moscow were taken, for him to remain there and do what he was predestined to do. Next day, with the sole idea of not sparing himself and not lagging in any way behind them, Pierre went to the Three Hills Gate. But when he returned to the house convinced that Moscow would not be defended, he suddenly felt that what before had seemed to him merely a possibility had now become absolutely necessary and inevitable. He must remain in Moscow, concealing his name, and must meet Napoleon and kill him, and either perish or put an end to the misery of all Europe, which seemed to him was solely due to Napoleon. Pierre knew all the details of the attempt on Bonaparte's life in 1809 by a German student in Vienna and knew that the student had been shot. And the risk to which he would expose his life by carrying out his design excited him still more. Two equally strong feelings drew Pierre irresistibly to this purpose. The first was a feeling of the necessity of sacrifice and suffering in view of the common calamity, the same feeling that had caused him to go to Mojesk on the twenty-fifth and to make his way to the very thick of the battle and had now caused him to run away from his home, and in place of the luxury and comfort to which he was accustomed, to sleep on a hard sofa without undressing and eat the same food as Gerasim. The other was that vague and quite Russian feeling of contempt for everything conventional, artificial, and human, for everything the majority of men regard as the greatest good in the world. Pierre had first experienced this strange and fascinating feeling at the Sloboda Palace when he had suddenly felt that wealth, power, and life 
all that men so painstakingly acquire in guard, if it has any worth, has so only by reason of the joy with which it can all be renounced. It was that feeling that induces a volunteer recruit to spend his last penny on drink, and a drunken man to smash mirrors or glasses for no apparent reason, and knowing that it will cost him all the money he possesses. The feeling which causes a man to perform actions which, from an ordinary point of view, are insane, to test, as it were, his personal power and strength, affirming the existence of a higher, non-human criterion of life. From the very day Pierre had experienced this feeling for the first time at the Sloboda Palace, he had been continuously under its influence, but only now found full satisfaction for it. Moreover, at this moment Pierre was supported in his design and prevented from announcing it by what he had already done in that direction. If he were now to leave Moscow like everyone else, his flight from home, the peasant coat, the pistol, and his announcement to the Rostovs that he would remain in Moscow, would all become not merely meaningless but contemptible and ridiculous, and to this Pierre was very sensitive. Pierre's physical condition, as is always the case, corresponded to his mental state. The unaccustomed coarse food, the vodka he drank during those days, the absence of wine and cigars, his dirty unchanged linen, two almost sleepless nights passed on a short sofa without bedding, all this kept him in a state of excitement bordering on insanity. It was two o'clock in the afternoon. The French had already entered Moscow. Pierre knew this, but instead of acting he only thought about his undertaking, going over its minutest details in his mind. In his fancy he did not clearly picture to himself either the striking of the blow or the death of Napoleon, but with extraordinary vividness and melancholy enjoyment imagined his own destruction and heroic endurance. "'Yes, alone and for the sake of all, I must do it or perish,' he thought. "'Yes, I will approach, and then suddenly, with pistol or dagger, but that is all the same.' It is not I, but the hand of providence that punishes thee, I shall say," thought he, imagining what he would say when killing Napoleon. "'Well, then, take me and execute me,' he went on, speaking to himself and bowing his head with a sad but firm expression. While Pierre, standing in the middle of the room, was talking to himself in this way, the study door opened, and on the threshold appeared the figure of Makar Alexeyevich always so timid before, but now quite transformed. His dressing-gown was unfastened, his face red and distorted. He was obviously drunk. On seeing Pierre he grew confused at first, but noticing embarrassment on Pierre's face, immediately grew bold, and staggering on his thin legs advanced into the middle of the room. "'They're frightened,' he said confidentially in a hoarse voice. "'I say, I won't surrender. I say—' Am I not right, sir?" He paused, and then suddenly, seeing the pistol on the table, seized it with unexpected rapidity and ran out into the corridor. Gerasim and the porter, who had followed Makar Alexeyevich, stopped him in the vestibule and tried to take the pistol from him. Pierre, coming out into the corridor, looked with pity and repulsion at the half-crazy old man. Makar Alexeyevich, frowning with exertion, held on to the pistol and screamed hoarsely, evidently with some heroic fancy in his head. "'To arms! Board them! 
No, you shan't get it! he yelled. That will do, please, that will do. Have the goodness. Please, sir, to let go. Please, sir, pleaded Gerasim, trying carefully to steer Makar Alexeyevich by the elbows back to the door. Who are you? Bonaparte! shouted Makar Alexeyevich. That's not right, sir. Come to your room, please, and rest. Allow me to have the pistol. Be off, thou base slave! Touch me not! See this! shouted Makar Alexeyevich, brandishing the pistol. Board them! Catch hold! whispered Gerasim to the porter. They seized Makar Alexeyevich by the arms and dragged him to the door. The vestibule was filled with the discordant sounds of a struggle and of a tipsy, hoarse voice. Suddenly a fresh sound, a piercing feminine scream, reverberated from the porch, and the cook came running into the vestibule. "'It's them! Gracious heavens! Oh, Lord, four of them, horsemen!' she cried. Gerasim and the porter let Makar Alexeyevich go, and in the now silent corridor the sound of several hands knocking at the front door could be heard. End of Book Eleven, Chapter Twenty-Seven Book Eleven, Chapter Twenty-Eight Of War and Peace, Volume Three By Leo Tolstoy Translated by Elmer Maud this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Eleven, Chapter Twenty Eight. Pierre, having decided that until he had carried out his design, he would disclose neither his identity nor his knowledge of French, stood at the half open door of the corridor, intending to conceal himself as soon as the French entered. But the French entered, and still Pierre did not retire. An irresistible curiosity kept him there. There were two of them. One was an officer, a tall, soldierly, handsome man, the other evidently a private or an orderly, sunburned, short and thin, with sunken cheeks and a dull expression. The officer walked in front, leaning on a stick, and slightly limping. When he had advanced a few steps he stopped, having apparently decided that these were good quarters, turned round to the soldier standing at the entrance, and, in a loud voice of command, ordered them to put up the horses. Having done that, the officer, lifting his elbow with a smart gesture, stroked his moustache and lightly touched his hat. "'Bonjour, la compagnie! Good day, everybody!' said he gaily, smiling and looking about him. No one gave any reply. "'Vous êtes le bourgeois? Are you the master here?' the officer asked Gerasim. Gerasim gazed at the officer with an alarmed and inquiring look. Quartier, quartier, logement. Quarters, quarters, lodgings, said the officer, looking down at the little man with a condescending and good-natured smile. Les Français sont des bons enfants. Que diable! Voyons! Ne nous fâchons pas, mon vieux! The French are good fellows. What the devil? There, don't let us be cross, old fellow added he, clapping the scared and silent Gerasim on the shoulder. "'Well, does no one speak French in this establishment?' he asked again in French, looking around and meeting Pierre's eyes. Pierre moved away from the door. Again the officer turned to Gerasim and asked him to show him the rooms in the house. "'Master, not here. Don't understand. Me, you,' said Gerasim trying to render his words more comprehensible by contorting them. 
Still smiling, the French officer spread out his hands before Gerasim's nose, intimating that he did not understand him either, and moved limping to the door at which Pierre was standing. Pierre wished to go away and conceal himself, but at that moment he saw Makar Alexeyevich appearing at the open kitchen door with the pistol in his hand. With a madman's cunning, Makar Alexeyevich eyed the Frenchman, raised his pistol, and took aim. "'Board them!' yelled the tipsy man, trying to press the trigger. Hearing the yell, the officer turned round, and at the same moment Pierre threw himself on the drunkard. Just when Pierre snatched at and struck up the pistol, Makar Alexeyevich at last got his fingers on the trigger, there was a deafening report, and all were enveloped in a cloud of smoke. The Frenchman turned pale and rushed to the door. Forgetting his intention of concealing his knowledge of French, Pierre, snatching away the pistol and throwing it down, ran up to the officer and addressed him in French. "'You are not wounded?' he asked. "'I think not,' answered the Frenchman, feeling himself over. "'But I have had a lucky escape this time,' he added, pointing to the damaged plaster of the wall. "'Who is that man?' said he, looking sternly at Pierre. "'Oh, I am really in despair at what has occurred,' said Pierre rapidly, quite forgetting the part he had intended to play. "'He is an unfortunate madman who did not know what he was doing.' The officer went up to Makar Alexeyevich and took him by the collar. Makar Alexeyevich was standing with parted lips, swaying as if about to fall asleep, as he leaned against the wall. "'Brigand, you shall pay for this!' said the Frenchman, letting go of him. "'We French are merciful after victory, but we do not pardon traitors,' he added, with a look of gloomy dignity and a fine energetic gesture. Pierre continued in French to persuade the officer not to hold that drunken imbecile to account. The Frenchman listened in silence with the same gloomy expression, but suddenly turned to Pierre with a smile. For a few seconds he looked at him in silence. His handsome face assumed a melodramatically gentle expression, and he held out his hand. "'You have saved my life. You are French,' said he. For a Frenchman that deduction was indubitable. Only a Frenchman could perform a great deed, and to save his life, the life of Monsieur Rambal, captain of the 13th Light Regiment, was undoubtedly a very great deed. But however indubitable that conclusion and the officer's conviction based upon it, Pierre felt it necessary to disillusion him. "'I am Russian,' he said quickly. "'Tut, tut, tut! Tell that to others,' said the officer, waving his finger before his nose and smiling. "'You shall tell me all about that presently. I am delighted to meet a compatriot.' "'Well, and what are we to do with this man?' he added, addressing himself to Pierre as to a brother. Even if Pierre were not a Frenchman, having once received that loftiest of human appellations, he could not renounce it, said the officer's look and tone. In reply to his last question, Pierre again explained who Makar Alexeyevich was, and how just before their arrival that drunken imbecile had seized the loaded pistol, which they had not had time to recover from him, and begged the officer to let the deed go unpunished. The Frenchman expanded his chest and made a majestic gesture with his arm. "'You have saved my life. You are French. You ask his pardon? I grant it you. Lead that man away. 
said he quickly and energetically, and taking the arm of Pierre, whom he had promoted to be a Frenchman for saving his life, he went with him into the room. The soldiers in the yard, hearing the shot, came into the passage asking what had happened, and expressed their readiness to punish the culprits, but the officer sternly checked them. "'You will be called in when you are wanted,' he said. The soldiers went out again, and the orderly, who had meanwhile had time to visit the kitchen, came up to his officer. "'Captain, there is soup and a leg of mutton in the kitchen,' said he. "'Shall I serve them up?' "'Yes, and some wine,' answered the captain. End of Book Eleven, Chapter Twenty-Eight Book Eleven, Chapter Twenty-Nine of War and Peace, Volume Three, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Eleven, Chapter Twenty-Nine. When the French officer went into the room with Pierre, the latter again thought it his duty to assure him that he was not French, and wished to go away, but the officer would not hear of it. He was so very polite, amiable, good-natured, and genuinely grateful to Pierre for saving his life, that Pierre had not the heart to refuse, and sat down with him in the parlour, the first room they entered. To Pierre's assurances that he was not a Frenchman, the captain, evidently not understanding how any one could decline so flattering an appellation, shrugged his shoulders, and said that if Pierre absolutely insisted on passing for a Russian, let it be so but for all that he would be forever bound to Pierre by gratitude for saving his life. Had this man been endowed with the slightest capacity for perceiving the feelings of others, and had he at all understood what Pierre's feelings were, the latter would probably have left him, but the man's animated obtuseness to everything other than himself disarmed Pierre. "'A Frenchman or a Russian prince incognito,' said the officer, looking at Pierre's fine, though dirty linen, and at the ring on his finger. "'I owe my life to you, and offer you my friendship. A Frenchman never forgets either an insult or a service. I offer you my friendship. That is all I can say.' There was so much good nature and nobility, in the French sense of the word, in the officer's voice, in the expression of his face and in his gestures, that Pierre, unconsciously smiling in response to the Frenchman's smile, pressed the hand held out to him. "'Captain Rambal, of the Thirteenth Light Regiment, Chevalier of the Legion of Honour for the affair on the 7th of September,' he introduced himself, a self-satisfied, irrepressible smile puckering his lips under his moustache. "'Will you now be so good as to tell me with whom I have the honour of conversing so pleasantly, instead of being in the ambulance with that maniac's bullet in my body?' Pierre replied that he could not tell him his name, and, blushing, began to try to invent a name and to say something about his reason for concealing it, but the Frenchman hastily interrupted him. "'Oh, please,' said he, "'I understand your reasons. You are an officer, a superior officer, perhaps. You have borne arms against us. That's not my business. I owe you my life. That is enough for me. I am quite at your service. You belong to the gentry?" he concluded with a shade of inquiry in his tone. Pierre bent his head. "'Your baptismal name, if you please. That is all I ask. Monsieur Pierre, you say. That's all I want to know.' 
When the mutton and an omelette had been served and a samovar and vodka brought, with some wine which the French had taken from a Russian cellar and brought with them, Rambald invited Pierre to share his dinner, and himself began to eat greedily and quickly like a healthy and hungry man, munching his food rapidly with his strong teeth, continually smacking his lips and repeating, "'Excellent! Delicious!' His face grew red and was covered with perspiration. Pierre was hungry and shared the dinner with pleasure. Morel, the orderly, brought some hot water in a saucepan and placed a bottle of claret in it. He also brought a bottle of cavasse, taken from the kitchen for them to try. That beverage was already known to the French, and had been given a special name. They called it Limonade de Cochon, Pig's Lemonade, and Morel spoke well of the Limonade de Cochon he had found in the kitchen. But as the captain had the wine they had taken while passing through Moscow, he left the cavasse to Morel and applied himself to the bottle of Bordeaux. He wrapped the bottle up to its neck in a table-napkin and poured out wine for himself and for Pierre. The satisfaction of his hunger and the wine rendered the captain still more lively and he chatted incessantly all through dinner. "'Yes, my dear Monsieur Pierre, I owe you a fine votive candle for saving me from that maniac. You see, I have bullets enough in my body already. Here is one I got at Wagram—he touched his side—and a second at Smolensk. He showed a scar on his cheek. And this leg, which, as you see, does not want to march, I got that on the seventh at the great battle of La Moscowa. Sacre Dieu! It was splendid! That deluge of fire was worth seeing. It was a tough job you set us there, my word! You may be proud of it. And on my honor, in spite of the cough I caught there, I should be ready to begin again. I pity those who did not see it." "'I was there,' said Pierre. "'Bah, really? So much the better. You are certainly brave foes. The great redoubt held out well by my pipe,' continued the Frenchman. "'And you made us pay dear for it. I was at it three times. Sure as I sit here. Three times we reached the guns, and three times we were thrown back like cardboard figures. Oh, it was beautiful, Monsieur Pierre! Your grenadiers were splendid by heaven. I saw them close up their ranks six times in succession and march as if on parade. Fine fellows! Our King of Naples, who knows what's what, cried, Bravo! Ha ha! So you are one of us soldiers he added, smiling after a momentary pause. So much the better, so much the better, Monsieur Pierre. Terrible in battle, gallant with the fair." He winked and smiled. That's what the French are, Monsieur Pierre, aren't they? The captain was so naively and good-humouredly gay, so real and so pleased with himself, that Pierre almost winked back as he looked merrily at him. Probably the word gallant turned the captain's thoughts to the state of Moscow. Apropos, tell me, please, is it true that the women have all left Moscow? What a queer idea! What had they to be afraid of? Would not the French ladies leave Paris if the Russians entered it? asked Pierre. Ha, ha, ha! the Frenchman admitted a merry, sanguine chuckle, patting Pierre on the shoulder. What a thing to say! he exclaimed, Paris? But Paris! Paris! Paris, the capital of the world! 
Pierre finished his remark for him. The captain looked at Pierre. He had a habit of stopping short in the middle of his talk and gazing intently with his laughing, kindly eyes. Well, if you hadn't told me you were Russian, I should have wagered that you were a Parisian. You have that—I don't know what—that—and having uttered this compliment, he again gazed at him in silence. I have been in Paris. I spent years there," said Pierre. Oh, yes, one sees that plainly. Paris! A man doesn't know Paris is a savage. You can tell a Parisian two leagues off. Paris is Talma, La Duchesnois, Potier, the Sorbonne, the Boulevards. And noticing that his conclusion was weaker than what had gone before, he added quickly, There is only one Paris in the world. You have been to Paris and have remained Russian. Well, I don't esteem you the less for it." Under the influence of the wine he had drunk, and after the days he had spent alone with his depressing thoughts, Pierre involuntarily enjoyed talking with this cheerful and good-natured man. "'To return to your ladies. I hear they are lovely. What a wretched idea to go and bury themselves in the steppes when the French army is in Moscow! What a chance those girls have missed! You're peasants now, that's another thing. But you civilized people, you ought to know us better than that. We took Vienna, Berlin, Madrid, Naples, Rome, Warsaw, all the world's capitals. We were feared, but we were loved. We are nice to know. And then the Emperor—" He began, but Pierre interrupted him. The Emperor, Pierre repeated, and his face suddenly became sad and embarrassed, is the Emperor. The Emperor? He is generosity, mercy, justice, order, genius. That's what the Emperor is. It is I, Rambal, who tell you so. I assure you, I was his enemy eight years ago. My father was an emigrant count. But that man has vanquished me. He has taken hold of me. I could not resist the sight of the grandeur and glory with which he has covered France. When I understood what he wanted, when I saw that he was preparing a bed of laurels for us, you know, I said to myself, that is a monarch, and I devoted myself to him. So there! Oh, yes, mon cher, he is the greatest man of the ages, past or future." "'Is he in Moscow?' Pierre stammered with a guilty look. The Frenchman looked at his guilty face and smiled. No. He will make his entry tomorrow," he replied, and continued his talk. Their conversation was interrupted by the cries of several voices at the gate, and by Morel, who came to say that some Württemberg hussars had come and wanted to put up their horses in the yard where the captain's horses were. This difficulty had arisen chiefly because the hussars did not understand what was said to them in French. The captain had their senior sergeant called in and, in a stern voice, asked him to what regiment he belonged, who was his commanding officer, and by what right he allowed himself to claim quarters that were already occupied. The German, who knew little French, answered the two first questions by giving the names of his regiment and of his commanding officer, but in reply to the third question, which he did not understand, said, introducing broken French into his own German, that he was the quartermaster of the regiment and his commander had ordered them to occupy all the houses one after another. 
Pierre, who knew German, translated what the German said to the captain and gave the captain's reply to the Württemberg hussar in German. When he had understood what was said to him, the German submitted and took his man elsewhere. The captain went out into the porch and gave some orders in a loud voice. When he returned to the room, Pierre was sitting in the same place as before, with his head in his hands. His face expressed suffering. He really was suffering at that moment. When the captain went out and he was left alone, suddenly he came to himself and realized the position he was in. It was not that Moscow had been taken, or that the happy conquerors were masters in it and were patronizing him. Painful as that was, it was not that which tormented Pierre at the moment. He was tormented by the consciousness of his own weakness. The few glasses of wine he had drunk, and the conversation with this good-natured man, had destroyed the mood of concentrated gloom in which he had spent the last few days, and which was essential for the execution of his design. The pistol, dagger, and peasant coat were ready. Napoleon was to enter the town next day. Pierre still considered that it would be a useful and worthy action to slay the evildoer, but now he felt that he would not do it. He did not know why but he felt a foreboding that he would not carry out his intention. He struggled against the confession of his weakness, but dimly felt that he could not overcome it, and that his former gloomy frame of mind, concerning vengeance, killing, and self-sacrifice, had been dispersed like dust by contact with the first man he met. The captain returned to the room, limping slightly and whistling a tune. The Frenchman's chatter, which had previously amused Pierre, now repelled him. The tune he was whistling, his gait, and the gesture with which he twirled his moustache all now seemed offensive. "'I will go away immediately. I won't say another word to him,' thought Pierre. He thought this, but still sat in the same place. A strange feeling of weakness tied him to the spot. He wished to get up and go away, but could not do so. The captain, on the other hand, seemed very cheerful. He paced up and down the room twice. His eyes shone and his moustache twitched as if he were smiling to himself at some amusing thought. "'The colonel of those Württembergers is delightful,' he suddenly said. "'He's a German, but a nice fellow all the same. But he's a German.' He sat down facing Pierre. "'By the way, you know German, then?' Pierre looked at him in silence. What is the German for shelter?" Shelter? Pierre repeated. The German for shelter is Unterkunft. How do you say it? The captain asked quickly and doubtfully. Unterkunft, Pierre repeated. Unterkopf, said the captain, and looked at Pierre for some seconds with laughing eyes. These Germans are first-rate fools, don't you think so, Monsieur Pierre? He concluded. Well. Let's have another bottle of this Moscow Bordeaux, shall we? Morel will warm us up another little bottle. Morel! he called out gaily. Morel brought candles and a bottle of wine. The captain looked at Pierre by the candlelight and was evidently struck by the troubled expression on his companion's face. Rambal, with genuine distress and sympathy in his face, went up to Pierre and bent over him. There now, we're sad, said he, touching Pierre's hand. Have I upset you? No, really. Have you anything against me?" he asked Pierre. Perhaps it's the state of affairs? 
Pierre did not answer, but looked cordially into the Frenchman's eyes, whose expression of sympathy was pleasing to him. Honestly, without speaking of what I owe you, I feel friendship for you. Can I do anything for you? Dispose of me. It is for life and death. I say it with my hand on my heart," said he, striking his chest. "'Thank you,' said Pierre. The captain gazed intently at him, as he had done when he learned that shelter was Unterkunft in German, and his face suddenly brightened. "'Well, in that case, I drink to our friendship,' he cried gaily, filling two glasses with wine. Pierre took one of the glasses and emptied it. Rambal emptied his, too, again pressed Pierre's hand, and leaned his elbows on the table in a pensive attitude. "'Yes, my dear friend,' he began, "'such is fortune's caprice. Who would have said that I should be a soldier and a captain of dragoons in the service of Bonaparte, as we used to call him? Yet here I am in Moscow with him. I must tell you, mon cher,' he continued in the sad and measured tones of a man who intends to tell a long story, that our name is one of the most ancient in France." And with a Frenchman's easy and naive frankness, the captain told Pierre the story of his ancestors, his childhood, youth, and manhood, and all about his relations and his financial and family affairs, ma pauvre mère playing, of course, an important part in the story. But all that is only life-setting. The real thing is love. Love! Am I not right, Monsieur Pierre?" said he, growing animated. Another glass? Pierre again emptied his glass and poured himself out a third. Oh, women, women, said the captain, looking with glistening eyes at Pierre, began talking of love and of his love affairs. There were very many of these, as one could easily believe, looking at the officer's handsome, self-satisfied face, and noting the eager enthusiasm with which he spoke of women though all Rambal's love-stories had the sensual character which Frenchmen regard as the special charm and poetry of love, yet he told his story with such sincere conviction that he alone had experienced and known all the charm of love, and he described women so alluringly that Pierre listened to him with curiosity. It was plain that l'amour which the Frenchman was so fond of was not that low and simple kind that Pierre had once felt for his wife nor was it the romantic love stimulated by himself that he experienced for Natasha. Rambal despised both these kinds of love equally, the one he considered the love of clodhoppers and the other the love of simpletons. L'amour which the Frenchman worshipped consisted principally in the unnaturalness of his relation to the woman, and in a combination of incongruities giving the chief charm to the feeling. Thus the captain touchingly recounted the story of his love for a fascinating marquise of thirty-five, and at the same time for a charming innocent child of seventeen, daughter of the bewitching marquise. The conflict of magnanimity between the mother and the daughter, ending in the mother sacrificing herself and offering her daughter in marriage to her lover, even now agitated the captain, though it was the memory of a distant past. Then he recounted an episode in which the husband played the part of the lover, and he, the lover, assumed the role of the husband, as well as several droll incidents from his recollections of Germany, where shelter is called Unterkunft, and where the husbands eat sauerkraut and the young girls are too blonde. Finally, the latest episode in Poland, still fresh in the captain's memory, in which he narrated with rapid gestures and glowing face as of how he had saved the life of a Pole 
In general, the saving of life continually occurred in the captain's stories, and the Pole had entrusted to him his enchanting wife, Parisienne de Cure, while himself entering the French service. The captain was happy, the enchanting Polish lady wished to elope with him, but, prompted by magnanimity, the captain restored the wife to the husband, saying as he did so, I have saved your life, and I save your honor. Having repeated these words, the captain wiped his eyes and gave himself a shake, as if driving away the weakness which assailed him at this touching recollection. Listening to the captain's tales, Pierre, as often happens late in the evening and under the influence of wine, followed all that was told him, understood it all, and at the same time followed a train of personal memories which, he knew not why, suddenly arose in his mind. While listening to these love-stories, his own love for Natasha unexpectedly rose to his mind, and going over the pictures of that love in his imagination, he mentally compared them with Rambal's tales. Listening to the story of the struggle between love and duty, Pierre saw before his eyes every minutest detail of his last meeting with the object of his love at the Sukharev water-tower. At the time of that meeting it had not produced an effect upon him. He had not even once recalled it. But now it seemed to him that that meeting had had in it something very important and poetic. "'Peter Kirillovich, come here! We have recognized you!' He now seemed to hear the words she had uttered, and to see before him her eyes, her smile, her travelling hood, and a stray lock of her hair. And there seemed to him something pathetic and touching in all this. Having finished his tale about the enchanting Polish lady, the captain asked Pierre if he had ever experienced a similar impulse to sacrifice himself for love, and a feeling of envy of the legitimate husband. Challenged by this question, Pierre raised his head and felt a need to express the thoughts that filled his mind. He began to explain that he understood love for a woman somewhat differently. He said that in all his life he had loved and still loved only one woman, and that she could never be his. Tiens, said the captain. Pierre then explained that he had loved this woman from his earliest years, but that he had not dared to think of her because she was too young, and because he had been an illegitimate son without a name. Afterwards, when he had received a name and wealth, he dared not think of her because he loved her too well, placing her far above everything in the world, and especially, therefore, above himself. When he had reached this point, Pierre asked the captain whether he understood that. The captain made a gesture signifying that even if he did not understand it, he begged Pierre to continue. Platonic love, clouds, he muttered. Whether it was the wine he had drunk, or an impulse of frankness, or the thought that this man did not, and never would, know any of those who played a part in his story, or whether it was all these things together, something loosened Pierre's tongue. Speaking thickly, and with a faraway look in his shining eyes, he told the whole story of his life, his marriage, Natasha's love for his best friend, her betrayal of him, and all his own simple relations with her. Urged on by Rimbaud's questions, he also told what he had at first concealed, his own position, and even his name. More than anything else in Pierre's story, the captain was impressed by the fact that Pierre was very rich, had two mansions in Moscow, and that he had abandoned everything and not left the city, 
but remained there concealing his name and station. When it was late at night they went out together into the street. The night was warm and light. To the left of the house on the Pokrovka a fire glowed, the first of those that were beginning in Moscow. To the right and high up in the sky was the sickle of the waning moon, and opposite to it hung that bright comet which was connected in Pierre's heart with his love. At the gate stood Gerasim, the cook, and two Frenchmen. Their laughter and their mutually incomprehensible remarks in two languages could be heard. They were looking at the glow seen in the town. There was nothing terrible in the one small distant fire in the immense city. Gazing at the high starry sky, at the moon, at the comet, and at the glow from the fire, Pierre experienced a joyful emotion. There now, how good it is! What more does one need? thought he. And suddenly remembering his intention, he grew dizzy and felt so faint that he leaned against the fence to save himself from falling. Without taking leave of his new friend, Pierre left the gate with unsteady steps and returning to his room, lay down on the sofa and immediately fell asleep. End of Book Eleven, Chapter Twenty Nine. Book Eleven, Chapter Thirty, of War and Peace, Volume Three, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Eleven, Chapter Thirty. The glow of the first fire that began on the second of September was watched from the various roads by the fugitive Muscovites and by the retreating troops, with many different feelings. The Rostov party spent the night at Mitischi, fourteen miles from Moscow. They had started so late on the first of September, the road had been so blocked by vehicles and troops, so many things had been forgotten for which servants were sent back, that they had decided to spend that night at a place three miles out of Moscow. The next morning they woke late and were again delayed so often that they only got as far as Great Matischi. At ten o'clock that evening, the Rostov family and the wounded traveling with them were all distributed in the yards and huts of that large village. The Rostov servants and coachmen and the orderlies of the wounded officers, after attending to their masters, had supper, fed the horses, and came out into the porches. In a neighboring hut lay Ryevsky's adjutant with a fractured wrist. The awful pain he suffered made him moan incessantly and piteously, and his moaning sounded terrible in the darkness of the autumn night. He had spent the first night in the same yard as the Rostovs. The countess said she had been unable to close her eyes on account of his moaning, and at Matischi she moved into a worse hut simply to be farther away from the wounded man. In the darkness of the night one of the servants noticed above the high body of a coach standing before the porch the small glow of another fire. One glow had long been visible, and everybody knew that it was little Matischi burning, set on fire by Mamanov's Cossacks. "'But look here, brothers, there's another fire,' remarked an orderly. All turned their attention to the glow. But they told us little Matischi had been set on fire by Mamanov's Cossacks. But that's not Matischi, it's farther away. Look, 
It must be in Moscow. Two of the gazers went round to the other side of the coach and sat down on its steps. It's more to the left. Why, little Matisti is over there, and this is right on the other side. Several men joined the first two. See how it's flaring, said one. That's a fire in Moscow, either in the Sushevsky or the Rogoski quarter. No one replied to this remark, and for some time they all gazed silently at the spreading flames of the second fire in the distance. Old Daniel Terentich, the Count's valet, as he was called, came up to the group and shouted at Mishka. "'What are you staring at, you good-for-nothing? The Count will be calling, and there's nobody there. Go and gather the clothes together.' "'I only ran out to get some water,' said Mishka. "'But what do you think, Daniel Terentich? Doesn't it look as if that glow were in Moscow?' remarked one of the footmen. Daniel Terentich made no reply, and again for a long time they were all silent. The glow spread, rising and falling, farther and farther still. "'God have mercy! It's windy and dry,' said another voice. "'Just look! See what it's doing now! Oh, Lord, you can even see the crows flying! Lord have mercy on us sinners! They'll put it out, no fear!' Who's to put it out? Daniel Terentich, who had hitherto been silent, was heard to say. His voice was calm and deliberate. Moscow it is, brothers, said he. Mother Moscow, the white. His voice faltered, and he gave way to an old man's sob. And it was as if they had all only waited for this to realize the significance for them of the glow they were watching. Sighs were heard, words of prayer, and the sobbing of the Count's old valet. End of Book Eleven, Chapter Thirty Book Eleven, Chapter Thirty One Of War and Peace, Volume Three, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Eleven, Chapter Thirty One. The valet, returning to the cottage, informed the count that Moscow was burning. The count donned his dressing gown and went out to look. Sonia and Madame Chaus, who had not yet undressed, went out with him. Only Natasha and the countess remained in the room. Petya was no longer with the family. He had gone on with his regiment, which was making for Troitsa. The countess, on hearing that Moscow was on fire, began to cry. Natasha, pale with a fixed look, was sitting on the bench under the icons just where she had sat down on arriving, and paid no attention to her father's words. She was listening to the ceaseless moaning of the adjutant three houses off. "'Oh, how terrible!' said Sonia, returning from the yard chilled and frightened. "'I believe the whole of Moscow will burn. There's an awful glow.' Natasha, do look! You can see it from the window," she said to her cousin, evidently wishing to distract her mind. But Natasha looked at her as if not understanding what was said to her, and again fixed her eyes on the corner of the stove. She had been in this condition of stupor since the morning, when Sonia, to the surprise and annoyance of the countess, 
had for some unaccountable reason found it necessary to tell Natasha of Prince Andrew's wound, and of his being with their party. The Countess had seldom been so angry with anyone as she was with Sonia. Sonia had cried and begged to be forgiven, and now, as if trying to atone for her fault, paid unceasing attention to her cousin. "'Look, Natasha, how dreadfully it is burning!' said she. "'What's burning?' asked Natasha. "'Oh, yes, Moscow.' And, as if in order not to offend Sonia and to get rid of her, she turned her face to the window, looked out in such a way that it was evident that she could not see anything, and again settled down in her former attitude. "'But you didn't see it.' "'Yes, I really did,' Natasha replied in a voice that pleaded to be left in peace. Both the Countess and Sonia understood that, naturally, neither Moscow nor the burning of Moscow nor anything else could seem of importance to Natasha. The Count returned and lay down behind the partition. The Countess went up to her daughter and touched her head with the back of her hand, as she was wont to do when Natasha was ill, then touched her forehead with her lips as if to feel whether she was feverish, and finally kissed her. "'You are cold. You are trembling all over. You'd better lie down,' said the Countess. "'Lie down? All right, I will. I'll lie down at once,' said Natasha. When Natasha had been told that morning that Prince Andrew was seriously wounded and was traveling with their party, she had at first asked many questions. Where was he going? How was he wounded? Was it serious? And could she see him? But after she had been told that she could not see him, that he was seriously wounded but that his life was not in danger, she ceased to ask questions or to speak at all, evidently disbelieving what they told her and convinced that say what she might, she would still be told the same. All the way she had sat motionless in a corner of the coach with wide open eyes, and the expression in them which the Countess knew so well and feared so much, and now she sat in the same way on the bench where she had seated herself on arriving. She was planning something, and either deciding or had already decided something in her mind. The Countess knew this, but what it might be she did not know, and this alarmed and tormented her. "'Natasha, undress, darling. Lie down on my bed.' A bed had been made on a bedstead for the Countess only. Madame Chausse and the two girls were to sleep on some hay on the floor. "'No, Mamma, I will lie down here on the floor,' Natasha replied irritably, and she went to the window and opened it. Through the open window the moans of the adjutant could be heard more distinctly. She put her head out into the damp night air, and the Countess saw her slim neck shaking with sobs and throbbing against the window-frame. Natasha knew it was not Prince Andrew who was moaning. She knew Prince Andrew was in the same yard as themselves, and in a part of the hut across the passage. But this dreadful incessant moaning made her sob. The Countess exchanged a look with Sonia. "'Lie down, darling, lie down, my pet,' said the Countess, softly touching Natasha's shoulders. "'Come, lie down.' "'Oh, yes, I'll lie down at once.' said Natasha, and began hurriedly undressing, tugging at the tapes of her petticoat. When she had thrown off her dress and put on a dressing-jacket, she sat down with her foot under her on the bed that had been made up on the floor, jerked her thin and rather short plate of hair to the front, and began replating it. 
Her long, thin practice fingers rapidly unplated, replated, and tied up her plate. Her head moved from side to side from habit, but her eyes, feverishly wide, looked fixedly before her. When her toilette for the night was finished, she sank gently onto the sheet spread over the hay on the side nearest the door. "'Natasha, you'd better lie in the middle,' said Sonia. "'I'll stay here,' muttered Natasha. "'Do lie down,' she added crossly, and buried her face in the pillow. The Countess, Madame Schoss, and Sonia undressed hastily and lay down. The small lamp in front of the icons was the only light left in the room. But in the yard there was a light from the fire at Little Matisci a mile and a half away, and through the night came the noise of people shouting at a tavern Mamanov's Cossacks had set up across the street, and the adjutant's unceasing moans could still be heard. For a long time Natasha listened attentively to the sounds that reached her from inside and outside the room, and did not move. First she heard her mother praying and sighing, and the creak of her bed under her, then Madame Shaw's familiar whistling snore and Sonia's gentle breathing. Then the Countess called to Natasha. Natasha did not answer. "'I think she's asleep, Mama," said Sonia softly. After a short silence the Countess spoke again, but this time no one replied. Soon after that Natasha heard her mother's even breathing. Natasha did not move, though her little bare foot, thrust out from under the quilt, was growing cold on the bare floor. As if to celebrate a victory over everybody, a cricket chirped in a crack in the wall. A cock crowed far off, and another replied nearby. The shouting in the tavern had died down. Only the moaning of the adjutant was heard. Natasha sat up. "'Sonia, are you asleep? Mama?' she whispered. No one replied. Natasha rose slowly and carefully, crossed herself, and stepped cautiously on the cold and dirty floor with her slim, supple bare feet. The boards of the floor creaked. Stepping cautiously from one foot to the other, she ran like a kitten the few steps to the door and grasped the cold door-handle. It seemed to her that something heavy was beating rhythmically against all the walls of the room. It was her own heart sinking with alarm and terror and overflowing with love. She opened the door and stepped across the threshold and on to the cold, damp earthen floor of the passage. The cold she felt refreshed her. With her bare feet she touched a sleeping man, stepped over him, and opened the door into the part of the hut where Prince Andrew lay. It was dark in there. In the farthest corner, on a bench beside a bed on which something was lying, stood a tallow candle with a long, thick, and smoldering wick. From the moment she had been told that morning of Prince Andrew's wound and his presence there, Natasha had resolved to see him. She did not know why she had to. She knew the meeting would be painful, but felt the more convinced that it was necessary. All day she had lived only in hope of seeing him that night but now that the moment had come she was filled with dread of what she might see. How was he maimed? What was left of him? Was he like that incessant moaning of the adjutants? Yes, he was altogether like that. In her imagination he was that terrible moaning personified. When she saw an indistinct shape in the corner and mistook his knees raised under the quilt for his shoulders, she imagined a horrible body there and stood still in terror. 
but an irresistible impulse drew her forward. She cautiously took one step and then another, and found herself in the middle of a small room containing baggage. Another man, Timokhin, was lying in a corner on the benches beneath the icons, and two others, the doctor and a valet, lay on the floor. The valet sat up and whispered something. Timokhin, kept awake by the pain in his wounded leg, gazed with wide-open eyes at this strange apparition of a girl in a white chemise, dressing-jacket, and nightcap. The valet's sleepy, frightened exclamation, "'What do you want? What's the matter?' made Natasha approach more swiftly to what was lying in the corner. Horribly unlike a man as that body looked, she must see him. She passed the valet, the snuff fell from the candle-wick, and she saw Prince Andrew clearly, with his arms outside the quilt, and such as she had always seen him. He was the same as ever, but the feverish color of his face, his glittering eyes rapturously turned toward her, and especially his neck, delicate as a child's revealed by the turned-down collar of his shirt, gave him a peculiarly innocent, childlike look, such as she had never seen on him before. She went up to him, and with a swift, flexible youthful movement dropped on her knees. He smiled and held out his hand to her. End of Book Eleven, Chapter Thirty-One Book Eleven, Chapter Thirty-Two of War and Peace, Volume Three, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Eleven, Chapter Thirty-Two. Seven days had passed since Prince Andrew found himself in the ambulance station on the field of Borodino. His feverish state and the inflammation of his bowels, which were injured, were in the doctor's opinion sure to carry him off. But on the seventh day he ate with pleasure a piece of bread with some tea, and the doctor noticed that his temperature was lower. He had regained consciousness that morning. The first night after they left Moscow had been fairly warm, and he had remained in the Kalesh, but at Matischi the wounded man himself asked to be taken out and given some tea. The pain caused by his removal into the hut had made him groan aloud and again lose consciousness. When he had been placed on his camp-bed he lay for a long time motionless with closed eyes. Then he opened them and whispered softly, "'And the tea?' His remembering such a small detail of everyday life astonished the doctor. He felt Prince Andrew's pulse and to his surprise and dissatisfaction found it had improved. He was dissatisfied because he knew by experience that if his patient did not die now he would do so a little later with greater suffering. Timokhin, the red-nosed major of Prince Andrew's regiment, had joined him in Moscow and was being taken along with him, having been wounded in the leg at the Battle of Borodino. They were accompanied by a doctor, Prince Andrew's valet, his coachman, and two orderlies. They gave Prince Andrew some tea. He drank it eagerly, looking with feverish eyes at the door in front of him, as if trying to understand and remember something. "'I don't want any more. Is Timokhin here?' he asked. Timokhin crept along the bench to him. "'I am here, Your Excellency.' "'How's your wound?' "'Mine, sir. All right. But how about you?' Prince Andrew again pondered as if trying to remember something. "'Couldn't one get a book?' he asked. 
What book? The Gospels. I haven't one. The doctor promised to procure it for him and began to ask how he was feeling. Prince Andrew answered all his questions reluctantly but reasonably, and then said he wanted a bolster placed under him as he was uncomfortable and in great pain. The doctor and valet lifted the cloak with which he was covered, and making wry faces at the noisome smell of mortifying flesh that came from the wound, began examining that dreadful place. The doctor was very much displeased about something and made a change in the dressings, turning the wounded man over so that he groaned again and grew unconscious and delirious from the agony. He kept asking them to give him a book and put it under him. "'What trouble would it be to you?' he said. I have not got one. Please get it for me and put it under for a moment," he pleaded in a piteous voice. The doctor went into the passage to wash his hands. "'You fellows have no conscience,' said he to the valet, who was pouring water over his hands. "'For just one moment I didn't look after you. It's such pain, you know, that I wonder how he can bear it.' "'By the Lord Jesus Christ, I thought we had put something under him,' said the valet. The first time Prince Andrew understood where he was and what was the matter with him, and remembered being wounded and how, was when he asked to be carried into the hut after his calèche had stopped at Matisci. After growing confused from pain while being carried into the hut, he again regained consciousness, and while drinking tea once more recalled all that had happened to him, and above all vividly remembered the moment at the ambulance station, when, at the sight of the sufferings of a man he disliked, those new thoughts had come to him which promised him happiness. And those thoughts, though now vague and indefinite, again possessed his soul. He remembered that he had now a new source of happiness, and that this happiness had something to do with the Gospels. That was why he asked for a copy of them. The uncomfortable position in which they had put him and turned him over again confused his thoughts and when he came to himself a third time it was in the complete stillness of the night. Everybody near him was sleeping. A cricket chirped from across the passage. Someone was shouting and singing in the street. Cockroaches rustled on the table, on the icons and on the walls, and a big fly flopped at the head of the bed and around the candle beside him, the wick of which was charred and had shaped itself like a mushroom. His mind was not in a normal state. A healthy man usually thinks of, feels, and remembers innumerable things simultaneously, but has the power and will to select one sequence of thoughts or events on which to fix his whole attention. A healthy man can tear himself away from the deepest reflections to say a civil word to someone who comes in, and can then return again to his own thoughts. But Prince Andrew's mind was not in a normal state in that respect. All the powers of his mind were more active and clearer than ever but they acted apart from his will. Most diverse thoughts and images occupied him simultaneously. At times his brain suddenly began to work with a vigor, clearness, and depth it had never reached when he was in health, but suddenly, in the midst of its work, it would turn to some unexpected idea and he had not the strength to turn it back again. Yes, a new happiness was revealed to me of which man cannot be deprived he thought, as he lay in the semi-darkness of the quiet hut, gazing fixedly before him with feverish wide-open eyes. A happiness lying beyond material forces, outside the material influences that act on man, a happiness of the soul alone, 
the happiness of loving. Every man can understand it, but to conceive it and enjoy it was possible only for God. But how did God enjoin that law? And why was the sun? And suddenly the sequence of these thoughts broke off, and Prince Andrew heard, without knowing whether it was a delusion or reality, a soft whispering voice incessantly and rhythmically repeating, Pity, 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 and then titty, and then again, pity, 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 and titty once more. At the same time, he felt that above his face, above the very middle of it, some strange airy structure was being erected out of slender needles or splinters to the sound of this whispered music. He felt that he had to balance carefully, though it was difficult, so that this airy structure should not collapse, but nevertheless it kept collapsing and again slowly rising to the sound of whispered rhythmic music. "'It stretches, stretches, spreading out and stretching,' said Prince Andrew to himself. While listening to this whispering and feeling the sensation of this drawing out and the construction of this edifice of needles, he also saw by glimpses a red halo round the candle, and heard the rustle of the cockroaches and the buzzing of the fly that flopped against his pillow and his face. Each time the fly touched his face it gave him a burning sensation, and yet to his surprise it did not destroy the structure, though it knocked against the very region of his face where it was rising. But besides this there was something else of importance. It was something white by the door, the statue of a sphinx, which also oppressed him. But perhaps that's my shirt on the table, he thought, and that's my legs, and that is the door. But why is it always stretching and drawing itself out, and pity-pity-pity, and tee-tee, and pity-pity-pity? That's enough. Please leave off, Prince Andrew painfully entreated someone. And suddenly thoughts and feelings again swam to the surface of his mind with peculiar clearness and force. Yes. Love, he thought again quite clearly. But not love which loves for something, for some quality, for some purpose, or for some reason, but the love which I, while dying, first experienced when I saw my enemy and yet loved him. I experienced that feeling of love which is the very essence of the soul and does not require an object. Now again I feel that bliss. To love one's neighbor, to love one's enemies, to love everything, to love God in all His manifestations. It is possible to love someone dear to you with human love, but an enemy can only be loved by divine love. That is why I experienced such joy when I felt that I loved that man. What has become of him? Is he alive? When loving with human love, one may pass from love to hatred but divine love cannot change. No, neither death nor anything else can destroy it. It is the very essence of the soul. Yet how many people have I hated in my life? And of them all I loved and hated none as I did her. And he vividly pictured to himself Natasha, not as he had done in the past with nothing but her charms which gave him delight, but for the first time picturing to himself her soul. And he understood her feelings, her sufferings, shame and remorse. He now understood for the first time all the cruelty of his rejection of her, 
the cruelty of his rupture with her. If only it were possible for me to see her once more, just once, looking into those eyes to say, Pity, 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 and titi, and pity, 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 boom, flopped the fly. And this attention was suddenly carried into another world, a world of reality and delirium in which something particular was happening. In that world some structure was still being erected and did not fall, something was still stretching out, and the candle with its red halo was still burning, and the same shirt-like sphinx lay near the door. But besides all this something creaked, there was a whiff of fresh air, and a new white sphinx appeared, standing at the door and that sphinx had the pale face and shining eyes of the very Natasha of whom he had just been thinking. "'Oh, how oppressive this continual delirium is!' thought Prince Andrew, trying to drive that face from his imagination. But the face remained before him with the force of reality and drew nearer. Prince Andrew wished to return to that former world of pure thought, but he could not, and delirium drew him back into its domain. The soft whispering voice continued its rhythmic murmur, something oppressed him and stretched out, and the strange face was before him. Prince Andrew collected all his strength in an effort to recover his senses. He moved a little, and suddenly there was a ringing in his ears, a dimness in his eyes, and like a man plunged into water he lost consciousness. When he came to himself, Natasha, that same living Natasha, whom of all people he most longed to love with this new pure divine love that had been revealed to him, was kneeling before him. He realized that it was the real living Natasha, and he was not surprised, but quietly happy. Natasha, motionless on her knees, she was unable to stir, with frightened eyes riveted on him, was restraining her sobs. Her face was pale and rigid only in the lower part of it something quivered. Prince Andrew sighed with relief, smiled, and held out his hand. "'You?' he said. "'How fortunate!' With a rapid but careful movement Natasha drew nearer to him on her knees, and taking his hand carefully, bent her face over it and began kissing it, just touching it lightly with her lips. "'Forgive me!' she whispered, raising her head and glancing at him. "'Forgive me!' "'I love you,' said Prince Andrew. "'Forgive!' "'Forgive what?' he asked. "'Forgive me for what I have done!' faltered Natasha, in a scarcely audible, broken whisper, and began kissing his hand more rapidly, just touching it with her lips. "'I love you more, better than before.' said Prince Andrew, lifting her face with his hand so as to look into her eyes. Those eyes, filled with happy tears, gazed at him timidly, compassionately, and with joyous love. Natasha's thin, pale face, with its swollen lips, was more than plain, it was dreadful. But Prince Andrew did not see that. He saw her shining eyes which were beautiful. They heard the sound of voices behind them. Peter the valet, who was now wide awake, had roused the doctor. Tomokin, who had not slept at all because of the pain in his leg, had long been watching all that was going on, carefully covering his bare body with his sheet as he huddled up on his bench. "'What's this?' said the doctor, rising from his bed. "'Please go away, madam.' 
At that moment a maid sent by the Countess, who had noticed her daughter's absence, knocked at the door. Like a somnambulist aroused from her sleep, Natasha went out of the room, and returning to her hut, fell sobbing on her bed. From that time, during all the rest of the Rostovs' journey, at every halting place and wherever they spent a night, Natasha never left the wounded Bolkonsky, and the doctor had to admit that he had not expected from a young girl either such firmness or such skill in nursing a wounded man. Dreadful as the Countess imagined it would be should Prince Andrew die in her daughter's arms during the journey, as judging by what the doctor said it seemed might easily happen, she could not oppose Natasha. Though, with the intimacy now established between the wounded man and Natasha, the thought occurred that, should he recover, their former engagement would be renewed. No one, least of all Natasha and Prince Andrew, spoke of this. The unsettled question of life and death, which hung not only over Bolkonsky but over all Russia, shut out all other considerations. End of Book Eleven, Chapter Thirty-Two Book Eleven, Chapter Thirty-Three, of War and Peace, Volume Three, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Eleven, Chapter Thirty-Three. On the third of September, Pierre awoke late. His head was aching. The clothes in which he had slept without undressing felt uncomfortable on his body and his mind had a dim consciousness of something shameful he had done the day before. That something shameful was his yesterday's conversation with Captain Rumbal. It was eleven by the clock, but it seemed peculiarly dark out of doors. Pierre rose, rubbed his eyes, and seeing the pistol with an engraved stock which Gerasim had replaced on the writing-table, he remembered where he was and what lay before him that very day. Am I not too late? he thought. No, probably he won't make his entry into Moscow before noon. Pierre did not allow himself to reflect on what lay before him, but hastened to act. After arranging his clothes, he took the pistol and was about to go out. But it then occurred to him for the first time that he certainly could not carry the weapon in his hand through the streets. It was difficult to hide such a big pistol, even under his wide coat. He could not carry it unnoticed in his belt or under his arm. Besides, it had been discharged, and he had not had time to reload it. No matter, the dagger will do, he said to himself, though, when planning his design, he had more than once come to the conclusion that the chief mistake made by the student in 1809 had been to try to kill Napoleon with a dagger. But as his chief aim consisted not in carrying out his design, but in proving to himself that he would not abandon his intention and was doing all he could to achieve it, Pierre hastily took the blunt jagged dagger in a green sheath which he had bought at the Sukarev market with the pistol, and hid it under his waistcoat. Having tied a girdle over his coat and pulled his cap low on his head, Pierre went down the corridor, trying to avoid making a noise or meeting the captain, and passed out into the street. The conflagration, at which he had looked with so much indifference the evening before, had greatly increased during the night. Moscow was on fire in several places. 
the buildings in carriage row, across the river, in the bazaar and the Pavarskoy, as well as the barges on the Moskva River, and the timber-yards by the Dorgomilov Bridge were all ablaze. Pierre's way led through side-streets to the Pavarskoy and from there to the church of St. Nicholas on the Arbat, where he had long before decided that the deed should be done. The gates of most of the houses were locked, and the shutters up. The streets and lanes were deserted. The air was full of smoke and the smell of burning. Now and then he met Russians with anxious and timid faces, and Frenchmen with an air not of the city but of the camp, walking in the middle of the streets. Both the Russians and the French looked at Pierre with surprise. Besides his height and stoutness, and the strange morose look of suffering on his face and whole figure, the Russians stared at Pierre because they could not make out to what class he could belong. The French followed him with astonishment in their eyes, chiefly because Pierre, unlike all the other Russians who gazed at the French with fear and curiosity, paid no attention to them. At the gate of one house, three Frenchmen, who were explaining something to some Russians who did not understand them, stopped Pierre, asking if he did not know French. Pierre shook his head and went on. In another side street, a sentinel standing beside a green caisson shouted at him, but only when the shout was threateningly repeated and he heard the click of the man's musket as he raised it did Pierre understand that he had to pass on the other side of the street. He heard nothing and saw nothing of what went on around him. He carried his resolution within himself in terror and haste, like something dreadful and alien to him, for after the previous night's experience he was afraid of losing it but he was not destined to bring his mood safely to his destination. And even had he not been hindered by anything on the way, his intention could not now have been carried out, for Napoleon had passed the Arbat more than four hours previously on his way from the Dorogomilov suburb to the Kremlin, and was now sitting in a very gloomy frame of mind in a royal study in the Kremlin, giving detailed and exact orders as to measures to be taken immediately to extinguish the fire, to prevent looting and to reassure the inhabitants. But Pierre did not know this. He was entirely absorbed in what lay before him, and was tortured, as those are who obstinately undertake a task that is impossible for them, not because of its difficulty, but because of its incompatibility with their natures, by the fear of weakening at the decisive moment and so losing his self-esteem. Though he heard and saw nothing around him, he found his way by instinct, and did not go wrong in the side-streets that led to the Povarskoy. As Pierre approached that street, the smoke became denser and denser. He even felt the heat of the fire. Occasionally curly tongues of flame rose from under the roofs of the houses. He met more people in the streets, and they were more excited. But Pierre, though he felt that something unusual was happening around him, did not realize that he was approaching the fire. As he was going along a footpath across a wide open space adjoining the Povarskoy on one side and the gardens of Prince Gruzinski's house on the other, Pierre suddenly heard the desperate weeping of a woman close to him. He stopped as if awakening from a dream and lifted his head. By the side of the path, on the dusty dry grass, all sorts of household goods lay in a heap feather-beds, a samovar, icons and trunks. On the ground, beside the trunks, sat a thin woman no longer young, 
with long, prominent upper teeth and wearing a black cloak and cap. This woman, swaying to and fro and muttering something, was choking with sobs. Two girls of about ten and twelve, dressed in dirty short frocks and cloaks, were staring at their mother with a look of stupefaction on their pale, frightened faces. The youngest child, a boy of about seven, who wore an overcoat and an immense cap evidently not his own, was crying in his old nurse's arms. A dirty, barefooted maid was sitting on a trunk, and having undone her pale-colored plate, was pulling it straight and sniffing at her singed hair. The woman's husband, a short, round-shouldered man in the undress uniform of a civilian official, with sausage-shaped whiskers and showing under his square-set cap the hair smoothly brushed forward over his temples, with expressionless face was moving the trunks, which were placed one on another, and was dragging some garments from under them. As soon as she saw Pierre, the woman almost threw herself at his feet. "'Dear people! Good Christians! Save me! Help me, dear friends! Help us, somebody!' she muttered between her sobs. "'My girl! My daughter! My youngest daughter is left behind! She's burned! Oh! Was it for this I nursed you? Oh!' "'Don't, Mary Nikolaevna!' said her husband to her in a low voice, evidently only to justify himself before the stranger. "'Sister must have taken her, or else where can she be?' he added. "'Monster! Villain!' shouted the woman angrily, suddenly ceasing to weep. "'You have no heart! You don't feel for your own child! Another man would have rescued her from the fire! But this is a monster, and neither a man nor a father!' You, honored sir, or a noble man," she went on, addressing Pierre rapidly between her sobs. The fire broke out alongside and blew our way. The maid called out fire, and we rushed to collect our things. We ran out just as we were. This is what we have brought away. The icons and my dowry bed and all the rest is lost. We seized the children. But not Katie. Oh, oh, Lord!" And again she began to sob my child, my dear one! Burned! Burned!" "'But where was she left?' asked Pierre. From the expression of his animated face the woman saw that this man might help her. "'Oh, dear sir!' she cried, seizing him by the legs. "'My benefactor! Set my heart at ease! Aniska, go, you horrid girl! Show him the way!' she cried to the maid, angrily opening her mouth and still farther exposing her long teeth. "'Show me the way, show me, I—I'll do it!' gasped Pierre rapidly. The dirty maidservant stepped from behind the trunk, put up her plate, sighed, and went on her short, bare feet along the path. Pierre felt as if he had come back to life after a heavy swoon. He held his head higher, his eyes shone with the light of life, and with swift steps he followed the maid, overtook her, and came out on the Povarskoy. The whole street was full of clouds of black smoke. Tongues of flame here and there broke through that cloud. A great number of people crowded in front of the conflagration. In the middle of the street stood a French general saying something to those around him. Pierre, accompanied by the maid, was advancing to the spot where the general stood, but the French soldier stopped him. "'On ne passe pas!' "'You can't pass!' cried a voice. "'This way, uncle!' cried the girl. "'We'll pass through the side street by the Nikulins.' Pierre turned back, giving a spring now and then to keep up with her. 
She ran across the street, turned down a side street to the left, and passing three houses, turned into a yard on the right. "'It's here, close by,' said she, and, running across the yard, opened a gate in a wooden fence, and stopping, pointed out to him a small wooden wing of the house, which was burning brightly and fiercely. One of its sides had fallen in, another was on fire, and bright flames issued from the openings of the windows and from under the roof. As Pierre passed through the fence-gate, he was enveloped by hot air and involuntarily stopped. "'Which is it? Which is your house?' he asked. "'Oh!' wailed the girl, pointing to the wing. "'That's it! That was our lodging! You've burned to death! Our treasure! Katie! My precious little Missy! Oh!' lamented Aniska, who, at the sight of the fire, felt that she too must give expression to her feelings. Pierre rushed to the wing, but the heat was so great that he involuntarily passed round in a curve and came upon the large house that was as yet burning only at one end, just below the roof, and around which swarmed a crowd of Frenchmen. At first Pierre did not realize what these men, who were dragging something out, were about. But seeing before him a Frenchman hitting a peasant with a blunt sabre and trying to take from him a fox-fur coat, he vaguely understood that looting was going on there but he had no time to dwell on that idea. The sounds of crackling and the din of falling walls and ceilings, the whistle and hiss of the flames, the excited shouts of the people, and the sight of the swaying smoke, now gathering into thick black clouds and now soaring up with glittering sparks, with here and there dense sheaves of flame, now red and now like golden fish-scales creeping along the walls, and the heat and smoke and rapidity of motion produced on Pierre the usual animating effects of a conflagration. It had a peculiarly strong effect on him because at the sight of the fire he felt himself suddenly freed from the ideas that had weighed him down. He felt young, bright, adroit, and resolute. He ran round to the other side of the lodge and was about to dash into that part of it which was still standing, when just above his head he heard several voices shouting and then a crackling sound and the ring of something heavy falling close beside him. Pierre looked up and saw at a window of the large house some Frenchman who had just thrown out the drawer of a chest filled with metal articles. Other French soldiers standing below went up to the drawer. "'What does this fellow want?' shouted one of them, referring to Pierre. "'There's a child in that house. Haven't you seen a child?' cried Pierre. "'What's he talking about?' "'Get along!' said several voices, and one of the soldiers, evidently afraid that Pierre might want to take from them some of the plate and bronzes that were in the drawer, moved threateningly toward him. "'A child?' shouted a Frenchman from above. "'I did hear something squealing in the garden. Perhaps it's his brat that the fellow was looking for. After all, one must be human, you know.' "'Where is it? Where?' said Pierre. "'There! There!' shouted the Frenchman at the window, pointing to the garden at the back of the house. "'Wait a bit! I'm coming down!' And a minute or two later the Frenchman, a black-eyed fellow with a spot on his cheek and shirt-sleeves, really did jump out of a window on the ground floor, and clapping Pierre on the shoulder ran with him into the garden. "'Hurry up, you others!' he called out to his comrades. "'It's getting hot!' When they reached a gravel path behind the house, 
The Frenchman pulled Pierre by the arm and pointed to a round, graveled space where a three-year-old girl in a pink dress was lying under a seat. "'There is your child. Oh, a girl! So much the better,' said the Frenchman. "'Good-bye, Fatty. We must be human. We are all mortal, you know.' And the Frenchman with the spot on his cheek ran back to his comrades. Breathless with joy, Pierre ran to the little girl and was going to take her in his arms. But seeing a stranger, the sickly, scrofulous-looking child, unattractively like her mother, began to yell and run away. Pierre, however, seized her and lifted her in his arms. She screamed desperately and angrily and tried with her little hands to pull Pierre's hands away and to bite them with her slobbering mouth. Pierre was seized by a sense of horror and repulsion such as he had experienced when touching some nasty little animal. But he made an effort not to throw the child down, and ran with her to the large house. It was now, however, impossible to get back the way he had come. The maid, Aniska, was no longer there, and Pierre, with a feeling of pity and disgust, pressed the wet, painfully sobbing child to himself as tenderly as he could and ran with her through the garden seeking another way out. End of Book Eleven, Chapter Thirty Three. Book Eleven, Chapter Thirty Four of War and Peace, Volume Three, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Eleven, Chapter Thirty Four. Having run through different yards and side streets, Pierre got back with his little burden to the Grzinski garden at the corner of the Povarskoy. He did not at first recognize the place from which he had set out to look for the child, so crowded was it now with people and goods that had been dragged out of the houses. Besides Russian families who had taken refuge here from the fire with their belongings, there were several French soldiers in a variety of clothing. Pierre took no notice of them. He hurried to find the family of that civil servant in order to restore the daughter to her mother and go to save someone else. Pierre felt that he had still much to do and to do quickly. Glowing with the heat and from running, he felt at that moment more strongly than ever the sense of youth, animation, and determination that had come on him when he ran to save the child. She had now become quiet and clinging with her little hands to Pierre's coat, sat on his arm gazing about her, like some little wild animal. He glanced at her occasionally with a slight smile. He fancied he saw something pathetically innocent in that frightened, sickly little face. He did not find the civil servant or his wife where he had left them. He walked among the crowd with rapid steps, scanning the various faces he met. Involuntarily he noticed a Georgian or Armenian family consisting of a very handsome old man of Oriental type, wearing a new cloth-covered sheepskin coat and new boots, an old woman of similar type and a young woman. That very young woman seemed to Pierre the perfection of Oriental beauty, with her sharply outlined, arched black eyebrows and the extraordinarily soft, bright color of her long, beautiful, expressionless face. Amid the scattered property and the crowd on the open space, she, in her rich satin cloak with a bright lilac shawl on her head, suggested a delicate exotic plant thrown out onto the snow. She was sitting on some bundles a little behind the old woman, and looked from under her long lashes with motionless, large, almond-shaped eyes at the ground before her. 
Evidently she was aware of her beauty and fearful because of it. Her face struck Pierre, and hurrying along by the fence, he turned several times to look at her. When he had reached the fence, still without finding those he sought, he stopped and looked about him. With the child in his arms his figure was now more conspicuous than before, and a group of Russians, both men and women, gathered about him. "'Have you lost anyone, my dear fellow? You're of the gentry yourself, aren't you? Whose child is it?' they asked him. Pierre replied that the child belonged to a woman in a black coat, who had been sitting there with her other children, and he asked whether anyone knew where she had gone. "'Why, that must be the Inferovs,' said an old deacon, addressing a pock-marked peasant woman. "'Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy,' he added in his customary bass. "'The Inferovs? No,' said the woman. "'They left in the morning. That must be either Mary Nikolaevna's or the Ivanovs.' "'He says a woman, and Mary Nikolaevna is a lady,' remarked a house-serf. "'Do you know her? She's thin, with long teeth.' said Pierre. "'That's Mary Nikolaevna. They went inside the garden when these wolves swooped down,' said the woman, pointing to the French soldiers. "'Oh, Lord, have mercy,' added the deacon. "'Go over that way. They're there. It's she. She kept on lamenting and crying,' continued the woman. "'It's she. Here, this way.' But Pierre was not listening to the woman. He had for some seconds been intently watching what was going on a few steps away. He was looking at the Armenian family and at two French soldiers who had gone up to them. One of these, a nimble little man, was wearing a blue coat tied round the waist with a rope. He had a nightcap on his head and his feet were bare. The other, whose appearance particularly struck Pierre, was a long, lank, round-shouldered, fair-haired man, slow in his movements and with an idiotic expression of face. He wore a woman's loose gown of frieze, blue trousers, and large torn hessian boots. The little barefooted Frenchman in the blue coat went up to the Armenians, and saying something, immediately seized the old man by his legs, and the old man at once began pulling off his boots. The other in the frieze gown stopped in front of the beautiful Armenian girl, and with his hands in his pockets stood staring at her, motionless and silent. "'Here, take the child.' said Pierre peremptorily and hurriedly to the woman, handing the little girl to her. "'Give her back to them! Give her back!' he almost shouted, putting the child, who began screaming on the ground, and again looking at the Frenchman and the Armenian family. The old man was already sitting barefoot. The little Frenchman had secured his second boot and was slapping one boot against the other. The old man was saying something in a voice broken by sobs, but Pierre caught but a glimpse of this. His whole attention was directed to the Frenchman in the frieze gown, who meanwhile, swaying slowly from side to side, had drawn nearer to the young woman, and taking his hands from his pockets had seized her by the neck. The beautiful Armenian still sat motionless and in the same attitude, with her long lashes drooping as if she did not see or feel what the soldier was doing to her. While Pierre was running the few steps that separated him from the Frenchman, the tall marauder in the frieze gown was already tearing from her neck the necklace the young Armenian was wearing, and the young woman, clutching at her neck, screamed piercingly. "'Let that woman alone!' exclaimed Pierre hoarsely in a furious voice, seizing the soldier by his round shoulders and throwing him aside. The soldier fell, got up, and ran away. But his comrade, throwing down the boots and drawing his sword, moved threateningly toward Pierre. 
Voyons, pas de bêtises. Look here, no nonsense, he cried. Pierre was in such a transport of rage that he remembered nothing, and his strength increased tenfold. He rushed at the barefooted Frenchman, and before the latter had time to draw his sword, knocked him off his feet and hammered him with his fists. Shouts of approval were heard from the crowd around, and at the same moment a mounted patrol of French Uhlans appeared from round the corner. The Uhlans came up at a trot to Pierre and the Frenchman and surrounded them. Pierre remembered nothing of what happened after that. He only remembered beating someone and being beaten and finally feeling that his hands were bound and that a crowd of French soldiers stood around him and were searching him. "'Lieutenant, he has a dagger,' were the first words Pierre understood. "'Ah, a weapon?' said the officer, and turned to the barefooted soldier who had been arrested with Pierre. "'All right, you can tell all about it at the court-martial.' Then he turned to Pierre. "'Do you speak French?' Pierre looked around him with bloodshot eyes and did not reply. His face probably looked very terrible, for the officer said something in a whisper and four more Uhlans left the ranks and placed themselves on both sides of Pierre. "'Do you speak French?' the officer asked again, keeping at a distance from Pierre. "'Call the interpreter.' A little man in Russian civilian clothes rode out from the ranks, and by his clothes and manner of speaking Pierre at once knew him to be a French salesman from one of the Moscow shops. He does not look like a common man," said the interpreter, after a searching look at Pierre. "'Ah, he looks very much like an incendiary,' remarked the officer. "'And ask him who he is,' he added. "'Who are you?' asked the interpreter, in poor Russian. "'You must answer the chief.' "'I will not tell you who I am. I am your prisoner. Take me,' Pierre suddenly replied in French. Ah, ah, muttered the officer with a frown. Well then, march. A crowd had collected round the Uhlans. Nearest to Pierre stood the pockmarked peasant woman with the little girl, and when the patrol started she moved forward. Where are they taking you to, you poor dear? said she. And the little girl, the little girl, what am I to do with her if she's not theirs? said the woman. What does that woman want? asked the officer. Pierre was as if intoxicated. His elation increased at the sight of the little girl he had saved. "'What does she want?' he murmured. "'She is bringing me my daughter, whom I have just saved from the flames,' said he. "'Good-bye.' And without knowing how this aimless lie had escaped him, he went along with resolute and triumphant steps between the French soldiers. The French patrol was one of those sent out through the various streets of Moscow by Duronel's order to put a stop to the pillage, and especially to catch the incendiaries, who, according to the general opinion which had that day originated among the higher French officers, were the cause of the conflagrations. After marching through a number of streets the patrol arrested five more Russian suspects, a small shopkeeper, two seminary students, a peasant and a house-serf, besides several looters. But of all these various suspected characters, Pierre was considered to be the most suspicious of all. When they had all been brought for the night to a large house on the Zubov rampart that was being used as a guardhouse, Pierre was placed apart under strict guard. End of Book Eleven, Chapter Thirty Four. End of War and Peace, Volume Three by Leo Tolstoy. 
Translated by Elmer Maud. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.